morning. It's uh, 8.04 Apple time. We managed to get everything installed ahead of uh, the 8.04 start time. So welcome to uh, pre-winter Grand Rounds. Uh, and uh, I'm going to uh, ask uh, Dr. Scott Schoem to introduce our, our speaker today. But I do want to do two things to, to recognize. Now, number one, the, 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 the staff uh, in otolaryngology. If you could all stand up, because I want to make sure we, we, everyone knows. And you guys in the back, too, please. <laughs> So thank you for what you do. It's a fantastic work. And uh, I, I still remember several years ago that as a junior faculty member, I was asked to, uh, to interview a, an incoming head for, uh, for, for the division. And, uh, and Scott showed up. He came from, uh, from Washington. Uh, and uh, it, it, was, uh, it was an amazing interview. And uh, I, I can't remember who was, I think it was, who was running the the actual hiring at that time, but I, I made a phone call and said, you've you got to hire him. And at the time, we really didn't have uh, a, a division. It was uh, mostly, you know, wonderful private practitioners that did pediatric uh, otolaryngology and then all the pediatric surgeries. And, uh, and no one would have predicted, you know, the, the enormous success of the division and what Scott has done here for so many years. So congratulations on your work. Uh, really amazing how you have changed uh, pediatric otolaryngology here in, in Connecticut. Uh, the other thing is I'd like to congratulate uh, Scott. Uh, it's it's uh, the first time ever uh, in Connecticut that the American Academy of Pediatrics Connecticut chapter um, has elected a uh, pediatric surgeon uh, as the as the uh, president. So he's the president-elect uh, of the AAP. And uh, so I'm enormously proud of that, Scott. And it just showcases your, your advocacy and your work on behalf of children that everyone knows that you do. And, um, I, I think we're incredibly well served by that. And I know for the next three years, as president-elect, the, the president and post-president, he's going to be very busy with a lot of committees, and, and uh, he's already getting those phone calls. So, uh, Scott, congratulations on your election. Uh, now I'm going to ask you to come up and introduce our speaker, who's hiding behind me. <laughs> lean down to the mic a little bit. I'm a little shorter than Juan. So thanks very much for coming out uh, this morning. I have the great pleasure of uh, being able to introduce our guest speaker and my friend uh, Reza Rabar uh, from Boston Children's. I'll be very brief because there's too much to mention about Reza on his resume. Uh, he went to Boston University undergrad and then Tufts uh, for medical school and residency he did his fellowship in pediatric laryngology at Boston Children's and has been in attending there since 1998. Uh, he's professor of otolaryngology at the Harvard Medical School, the associate otolaryngologist-in-chief uh, at uh, Boston Children's for otolaryngology, the director of the Center for Airway Disorders, and the co-director of the head, neck, and skull base surgery program, and in that realm, I asked him to speak today on head and neck masses along with uh, fetal head and neck masses uh, as part of his uh, talk. So thanks very much for coming, and Reza, you have the stage. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, well, it, it's really a pleasure for me to be here, and thank you for introduction, and thank you, Scott, Nicole, Katie, and Chris. Uh, for inviting me, and thank for everybody to be here. I know ahead of the storms, so I'll try to be on time. I was just mentioning to colleagues outside that, you know, giving this talk, it's a little bit hard because it's like preparing a food for a group of guests that you don't know what they like. If they are vegetarian, do they like red meat, fish, and so on and so forth. So I'm not going to give a lecture, I hope. What I'm hoping to do is to just have a conversation with you about head and neck uh, tumors. Um, there are many ways to deal with these things. There is no right or wrong way. I'll just share with you the things that I have learned or the mistakes that I have made in the past 20 years and just share my experience with you. Um, let's see if I let's bring this up. And please let me know if by any chance you cannot uh, hear me. And I was told that I should say that I have no, nothing to declare, no conflict. So what I'm hoping to do is to just share with you some common head and neck masses, some disease-specific issues related to the head and neck tumors, talk about a little bit malignant consideration in pediatric, and then end with fetal surgery. 
And what I'm hoping to do is to go uh, anatomy by anatomy, not only some common stuff, but some of the things that I have thought that maybe you see in your pediatric office or in head and neck uh, practices that are a little bit uh, not routine. So this is a patient who came to see me. And mom was telling me that, you know, every once in a while complains of pain and discomfort and some swelling uh, on the tongue. And when you see on the examination, you can only see just a divot. And this was there since birth, but it was getting more and more. But when you do the imaging, you see this big mass that extends down. This is a classic presentation for what we call a midline forgot duplication cyst. It is rare, but it's not that rare. It's, you know, typically oral cavity, midline portion of the neck. The presentation is often this intermittent issues. They come and go, usually come and go with upper respiratory infections and cold. It's a, so sometimes the, what you see in the oral cavity, specifically in the tongue and in the floor of the mouth, is just the tip of the iceberg. So if you see a patient like this with recurrence of swelling, then the next step is to think about imaging to see what this leads to. This patient was uh, seen by one of my colleagues for snoring and had very, very small tonsils and adenoids. And I was actually scoped. And so often, as you, for otolaryngologists in the room, they know that scoping, a flexible scope in the office on children, it's not that easy because they're fighting you. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of movement. And this was missed. I actually saw this patient myself. I did a flexible scope, and I didn't see this. But this is a real entity that sometimes may come to your office, lingual thyroid. And depending on the activity of this, they may or may not be hypothyroid, depending on the presentation. But sometimes they have snoring. Sometimes they could have pain and discomfort. And sometimes they actually, if it becomes enlarged and will become irritated, there could be some bleeding. So again, rare entity, but something to think about. Ranula, the presentation is very classic. Uh, they usually come with swelling on the, on the right or left aspect of the floor of the mouth. They, they, don't, they could be read as mucosal, leave it alone. Sometimes it comes and goes. Sometimes it extends to their neck, what we call plunging ranula, but they typically arise from the sublingual gland. The management is really not incision and drainage, but to remove the gland, as you can see here. And once you remove the sublingual gland, typically that will take care of the issues. Even in case of uh, plunging ranula, which extends into the neck, in the old days, 20 years ago, we had to go through the neck to drain it or think that we would remove it. But in reality, if you remove the source, which is the sublingual, sublingual gland, it usually should take care of the issue. This is a patient who saw me, and there was a question of anterior neck mass. And the question was whether this is a thyroglossal duxus. There was an ultrasound done which raised the question of thyroglossal duxus. And the reason for that was, it was this dermoid was located on the back of the tongue. So you could actually feel some underneath above the hyoid, but not necessarily, interestingly, through the floor of the mouth. But again, rare presentation something that could have been easily missed, and something if there's imaging, the CT scan was not done, or the MRI, you could think that this is a thyroglossal duxus and may want actually do a wrong surgery. Now let's move on to the neck. And obviously the most common one is a thyroglossal duxus. We used to get CT scan in the old days. Now we are moving away from getting a CT scan. We do get uh, ultrasound typically for workup of these. There's an entity, the, you know, the rate of cancer could be about 1%. I have seen three of these in children in 20, 22 years. So it's rare, but it can happen. Uh, if you do an ultrasound and get a CT scan and you actually see erosion or divoting within the hyoid bone, you should think about malignant potential. And that's if based on the ultrasound. If you see that, then it's worthwhile to consider doing an imaging. Obviously, the treatment, as everybody knows, is removing part of the hyoid and the cyst. Branchial cleft cyst, this is a congenital one. You, you should expect this to come at early age, but this patient was a student at college at Boston University and was referred to Dana-Farber because they thought that this is a lymphoma and it's a mass. So the branchial cleft cyst, congenital lesion, can present later on in life, in, in, in 20s and early 20s. Uh, they are usually cystic, they are soft, but if they are underneath the sternocleidomastoid muscle, as it enlarges and puts pressure, it can present as a firm mass, because what you are feeling is actually tense muscle 
not necessarily the cyst itself. So again, imaging could be helpful. This patient was diagnosed with recurrent prototitis because there was, as you know, it's very, very common, recurrence of infection, recurrence of swelling, and was receiving antibiotic intermittently every few months, and it will settle down, then it comes back. But you should think about sometimes a branchial cleft type 1 could present. This actually turned to be a little bit more complex. This was a duplication of extraordinary canal. But the message of this is if you're having an issue that keeps coming back, recurrence of infection, specifically if it's a unilateral, at some point you may think about that maybe it's not the routine stuff and could be a little bit more complex. This is a patient at Children's who had a fistula in the neck and was removed at the age of four, but came to the emergency room at Children's three times with unilateral what appeared to be a peritonsillar abscess. But in reality, it was a branchial cleft type two that extended from a sinus tract to the tonsil. So the sinus tract was removed, but the, ton the, uh, the extension of it to the unilateral tonsil was not and required another surgery of removing the tonsils and actually removing the component uh, into the, in the tonsillar area. Atypical mycobacteria, I don't know how often you see these, but these are presentation. The presentation is a soft mass, not painful, not tender, no fever. So again, at the younger age, this is the most common uh, location. We usually manage this with medic medically with clarithromycin. Typically wait for a few months. If they respond, okay. If they don't respond, then you can think about uh, surgery. In this case, this patient was a bit immunocompromised, so we decided to do the surgery. And typically just curettaging this should suffice. And this is after the surgery, just a small scar. The reason I showed you this, because there is another entity that really resembles atypical mycobacteria, and it's pilometric soma. These are the tumors, benign tumors, that comes from the hair follicles. So it, it feels, it looks the same, but it, does, it feels differently, meaning no pain, no tenderness, no fever, redness, same location. But when you feel this, it actually feels firm, because it has callus, it, has, uh, it, it feels like a kidney stone. And as you can see here, there is some calcification. And when you do the imaging, you can actually see calcification. If you see this, this is very classic for pilometric soma as opposed to atypical TB, which then you, read, you need to remove this as opposed to manage them with antibiotic. Protet. Most common is the lymphatic malformation. This becomes a little bit controversial of how to manage this thing. So I'll share you my view. On Again, by no means is the right way or the only way to do this. In my case, in my practice, if I have a lymphatic malformation like this at an, at an older age that present and is asymptomatic and cosmetically okay, I will just watch it. I don't do anything and see where it goes. I would let it declare itself. But sometimes they present with recurrence of infection and infection and you have done sclerotherapy and they don't respond and they're in the, in the emergency room every two months with recurrence of infection and require antibiotic and sometimes you have to remove it. And it's very, very challenging to remove this because often the facial nerve is sitting right on top of these things and you have to be careful. But then there is again nothing to do except you know, surgical management once the medical management has been maximized and has failed. Most common tumor is pleomorphic adenoma. Sometimes you're fortunate enough that it's superficial and you can see it, obviously, and the management is removal. But sometimes it, is not, it doesn't present like that. Sometimes it's very deep and it's not superficial and you may not feel it and it can present with recurrence of pain and discomfort and some infection sometimes if it blocks the drainage of the salivary gland. Again, management, surgery, but Point being is if you see something that is the recurrence of infection is unusual, the presentation is unusual, the symptoms are unilateral, that's when you should think about some sort of an imaging, ultrasound or CT or MRI. Some of them could be malignant. This patient was had surgery in an outside institution thinking that this was a pleomorphic adenoma, but it turned out to be a mycoepidermoid high-grade uh, high mycoepidermoid and required radiation. Sometimes these are rare entities, but it can come to your practice. And sometimes there are zebras. This is my patient. He did this imaging in Boston. They read it as pleomorphic adenoma. I took this patient to the OR. 
and it was coming in from a nerve. I, I was very, very fortunate that it was coming in from a margin and not from the main trunk. So you could have schwannoma in the parotid. And obviously this patient after surgery had some weakness. But you can imagine if you take the child to the operating room and you have a schwannoma coming in from the main trunk, that becomes a little bit complicated. So let's move on, and I hope I'm not going too fast. Please interrupt me if you have any question. Hemangioma, I'm not going to spend too much time this is what we see in the office, but I want to turn it to attention to this small picture in the corner because this really won't, this is a cosmetic issue, but this is, can become an airway critical issue. So if you see this in your practice with this presentation, think about subglottic hemangioma. And the ratio of this 50-50, you hear it, but in my, in my practice, if I see this and the patient has recurrence of strider with cold and so on and so forth, I do imaging, I do a neck film, I do a chest x-ray, just to be sure I'm not missing this. Treatment, again, they involute. This is the same patient. It goes from here to here, even if you don't do anything to it. And you get some redundant mucosa, and at some point you may do some cosmetic surgery just to remove the redundant fat tissue or redundant skin. But you can leave them alone and monitor them if they are asymptomatic. You can, conservative management, I'm not going to get into these. Steroids still uh, effective. The interferon and brincristin are sort of fade away. All of you guys know that this is the treatment management based on this publication that came out. But my point of bringing this up is be careful with this because we have had this complication. And I urge everyone to look at this paper. When things are good, we usually think of the goodness. But sometimes it's worthwhile to think about the complication. This is a great, this is the first article that came out actually discussed about the complication related to this medication. So be worried about bradycardia and hypoglycemia. It is real and we have seen it. Lymphatic malformation, uh, again, you are all familiar with. This is the old terminology which we don't use. This is a new terminology based on the size of the lymph lymphatic malformation on the imaging. Treatment could be antibiotic, sclerotherapy, surgical. Regardless of what you do, at least in my practice, there's a high rate of recurrence. I usually say it's a third rule. One-third respond well to any of these. One-third average response, and one-third do not respond. And I think it's important to keep those family well informed. So this is a patient who was fortunate enough to somewhat respond to sclerotherapy, but some do not and they get enlarged and they get intubated and then there's a question of trach is on the table and that's where the surgical intervention come into play. This is a patient, this is a classic presentation, was playing football in a town south of Boston, got hit during the game and couldn't breathe and went to the emergency room and ended up being intubated. So this was the initial presentation. So this balloon which was collapsed when it's in his neck since birth and just all it needed it's some sort of a trauma to bleed into it and go from a normal neck to this compressing the airway and this was all hematoma and, and the only management of this is to remove it otherwise the issue of extubation or trach or how long will you even leave him intubated is on the table some of these pictures may be a little bit graphic so forgive me if you know, feel free to close your eyes if it's uh, uncomfortable. This patient was, came to us from, from London, was managed in a great institution in London for about three months. She's not sticking her tongue out. This was her natural being. This is all lymphatic malformation, as you can see. The entire tongue is LM. Could not eat, but no airway issues and has received everything that is on the table, including scrototherapy, uh, medical management, antibiotic. So they, she came to Children's, and we went through the same thing. This was managed. She was in the ward for about four months. We really couldn't decide what to do, or she was not responding. And this was getting worse, and you know, then the question was surgery. The point that I'm uh, raising here is you really need to exhaust medical management with these patients before you do the surgery, but sometimes as a surgeon, it comes to the point of doing the surgery. So I think the time of the surgery is critical and a conversation with the family because resection of this may lead to definitely speech issues, feeding issues, aspiration. But so, you know, then the question is after six months, 
combined, London and Boston being managed and everything has been exhausted, then the point of surgery comes in and we were fortunate that this patient responded well, had, had some speech issues, but feeding-wise is doing great. The, we are very fortunate working with pediatrics because they really, really compensate. It's amazing the ability of the children to recover and compensate. And this is the start, and so far she's doing okay. She's developing some LM here, but otherwise from a tongue perspective doing well. Nasal dermoid, I know you see this in your practice. My message is if you see it, take it seriously. I have seen three cases in 20 years of bad meningitis with these things that is disastrous. Uh, so it can present like this, it can present like a sinus tract, it can present a small hair, or it can present like a um, uh, dermoid, uh, just collection of skin debris in the, in the nose. It's controversial, but somewhere between 10, 15, 12% 12 have intracranial extension. If you're concerned, I'm concerned, I always do imaging. The question is the timing. So if I, if I see, uh, you know, at some point in the first six months of life, I do an imaging just to be sure there is no intracranial extension. Maybe it's an overkill. I don't know. There is no data to support it one way or the other, but you know, because of the meningitis I've seen, I'm, I'm a little bit scared of just sitting on it. So you don't have to rush to do surgery if, it's, if there is no intracranial extension, but I do think getting an imaging in the first six months, five, six months of life is reasonable. These, I, for the, the otolaryngologists in the room, nasal dermoid is like cholesteatoma in the ear. You have to remove all of it, otherwise it comes back. You cannot do partial, partial otologic surgery for cholesteatoma. It's the same thing with the dermoid. Think of it as a cholesteatoma in the nose. So you can't IND it, and you have to remove it and excise it completely. This is a child with a presentation at a later age, there was a sinus track here. Sometimes they can extend. You can see the probe, the extension of the probe, and typically it has this caseating material that you have to remove. Sometimes there could be two, one here and one here. Now, this is a big incision, but that was my point. Every recurrence we have had at Children's of the nasal dermoid, it's always intranasal recurrence and never intracranial recurrence because we try to be very cosmetically pleasing. As I said, this is a cholesteatoma. If you do an ear surgery and the cholesteatoma is wrapped around malleus and incus and stapes, you don't try to peel them off. You sometimes remove the ossicles. So manage this in the nose the same way that you manage cholesteatoma. And sometimes, like this patient, fullness here, but the huge intra and we do this with, uh, with our neurosurgical colleagues. I'm not a fan. Some people do external rhinoplasty. It has failed in my hand. I'm not good enough to, do, to remove all of this polysteatoma, as I like to call it, to uh, external rhinoplasty. So incision to remove the nasal component and also a craniotomy with our colleague from neurosurgical to remove, as you can see, this caseating dermoid intracranially, and that needs to be removed. So uh, <clears throat> next phase, malignancies. I'm going to show you some graphic picture, and, the re and forgive me if, if it bothers some individual. The reason I do that is because I feel as a surgeon, and I encourage everyone in the room to really try to avoid radiation on kids. I personally made a mistake on this patient. I saw this patient about 21 years ago, had, had cancer. And there was a, I still to this day remain, remember the conversation, should we do a big surgery on this patient or should we radiate? I still remember it. And this patient died at an older age because of the secondary malignancy. And there was nothing we could do about it. And it has always stuck with me. So I'm not saying that you should not radiate. I'm not suggesting that you should operate on everyone. I'm not suggesting that you should be an aggressive surgeon. But I am suggesting to think about if there are ways that you can avoid radiating the children. So I show you some cases. This is a 14-year-old. These are all my cases. 14-year-old who came to see me because had a palatal lesion that was biopsied in an outside institution that turned out to be a rhabdomyosarcoma. There was no previous imaging. I had no idea where it is. I could see a small scar. 
and it was in the palate, and the pathology was reviewed. So the question, obviously, this patient needs chemotherapy for systemic control, but what do you do for local control? Are you going to radiate or doing the surgery? So the easy way out is to do the radiation. The hard way is to do the surgery. And the surgery may sound aggressive, but I showed you the picture. I'm not going to ha I don't know what's going to happen to this 14-year-old 10 years from now when she's 24 if she gets radiated. So we had a, after a long conversation, we decided to do the surgery. And obviously, because there was no previous imaging, the surgery means removing the soft palate, which means speech issues, which means swallowing issues. So we had everything prepared. The family didn't want to have radiation. And my point being is children amazingly compensate. Now, we may have been fortunate with this case. I'm not sure if the second one will go as well as this, but sometimes removing this, and she does not use this, we avoided radiation, has some speech issues, but interestingly, no nasal regurgitation or no feeding issues, even through the nose. It's amazing how they compensate. A five-year-old, same scenario. Chemo, rhabdomyosarcoma here has received chemo. Now the question is, would you radiate the face or would you remove it? And we show you these. These are, again, it's a drastic surgery, but sometimes it is worth it to avoid the radiation. So you have to remove this entire bone and some of the soft tissue. So these are intra-op pictures. The area is removed. The bone has been removed. So we do this ourselves. The surgery is done by us. Reconstruction is done by plastic. So I want to give them credit. This is the bone that they have harvested. They, create, they reconstructed the floor and the lateral aspect. The muscle flaps comes in to reconstruct. This is after the surgery. And these are just post-surgical imaging reconstruction. And she has lost the hair from the chemo. These are post-op. And she's much older. And the only issue is loss of some uh, forehead elevation because you're sacrificing a branch of the facial nerve. So, so again, big surgery looks aggressive, looks complex, but if you have the team to do it, I think it's worthwhile rather than radiating. I'm showing you two cases for mandibular reconstruction because I know there are some adult colleagues here too. So this is a patient with osteosarcoma of the mandible. The, obviously the management is surgery, they don't respond well, what are you going to do? Or can you remove the mandible? How would you reconstruct it? So forgive me for the pictures, but just to make a point, this is a big incision on a child. But I would leave it up to you to decide whether it's worthwhile to do this kind of incision or whether to radiate it. That's a, a departmental, departmental conversation. So again, I do the surgery, plastic does the reconstruction, this is the imaging that I showed you. You really can remove a lot of mandible, and you can reconstruct it. These are the fibula flap that I know the adult colleagues use for reconstruction of the mandible. This is when it's reconstructed by plastic team. This is closed, and this is the reconstruction side. So almost 70%, 60% of the mandible you can remove, and they compensate, and they do great. Cosmetically may not be pleasing, in my, in my opinion, it's worthwhile doing it versus radiation. Now the question is, can this be done on a younger child? And this is the, old, this is the youngest child we have done. This is a two-year-old, came to us from, uh, from Dublin, Ewing sarcoma of the mandible again. And chemo has done, the question is radiation, surgery. Same thing, this patient, you can remove about maybe 70% of the mandible. This is, this is the condyle. This is the upper teeth, the lower teeth, and the rest of it has been removed. Same process, fibula for reconstruction. And this is intra-op imaging when it's been reconstructed and the vessels have been anastomosed. This is immediately within a one-month post-op. You can see the reconstruction side. Obviously, has some feeding issues, and within three months or so, the feeding tube has been removed and is eating okay. Trying to stay on time. So the last phase for the younger people in the audience, the uh, training. I remember when I read this article. It was 1999, 
and I encourage you to read this because some people amazingly have a vision to predict. So this author said in 1999 said, predicted that by the year 2020, which is a year from now, most if not all be diagnosed uh, by fetal and predicted that the fetal surgery would be standard therapy for these cases. Now, half of this prediction came through, the first half. I don't think by next year we'll reach that point, but I think for the people younger in the group, the medical student and the resident, this will be a reality maybe 10 years from now, my prediction. So fetal medicine and surgery, it's really nothing new. This was described in 1960s. I would say 100% of the credits, both from, a med from the anesthesia side and the surgical side, goes to Michael Hirestone at UCSF. Typically, what happened is this patient, they go through routine, these moms go through the routine uh, evaluation, they get an ultrasound, there's some sort of an abnormality on ultrasound, they get concerned, they get referred to the fetal programs. It is a little bit interesting process because now you're dealing with two patients. You have to look at the mom side and you have to look at the fetus side. You obviously have to evaluate mom for all the you know, uh, cardiac issues, every other issues. I will come back to this. Psychosocial is an extremely important component of this and I will address this. And also by psychosocial, I mean insurance. I will tell you what I mean by this in a second. From a fetal side, you do an echo, ultrasound, MRI, and karyotype just to be sure there is no genetic issues. The team usually is complex. So you have a fetal team, which means it's either a general surgeon or a neurosurgeon who does fetal cases. In our case, it's an ORL case, a surgeon who does the fetal cases. And then you have an OB team for moms. So there are actually two groups of surgeons in the room. So it's a little bit chaotic and busy. One thing I want to leave with you is there is this misconception that doing fetal surgery and fetal anesthesia is the same as doing a C-section. It's absolutely opposite. When you do a C-section, your goal is to do it fast. You are providing anesthesia to mom only. You are not providing anesthesia to the fetus, and you want to really do the surgery and get out. The fetal surgery is opposite, meaning you're providing anesthesia to mom and the fetus. You have to go slow. You have to pre preserve the placental circulation, which means you are going to give dilatation, muscle, muscle relaxation to the uterus, which means you're going to have a lot of bleeding as opposed to the C-section. So just think of it, it's a completely two separate issues. From a surgical side, those who do this, there are three things that you need to consider. One is you're dealing with children who are you know, their cardiopulmonary system sometimes is immature, it's not fully developed. So there is hypoperforation, hypoperfusion. They don't have much blood to lose. So in a 26, 27 week preemie, if you lose 10 cc's, you have to transfuse them. They don't have much blood to lose. And also they get really, really cold. So when you do these surgeries, these are the three things you need to take into account. Indication, it changes on a daily basis. Classic one, congenital diaphragmatic her hernia, cardiac issues, bladder outlet obstruction, I will talk about teratoma, meningocils, and in case of ORL, either large neck masses or congenital high airway obstruction, and I will show you some cases. So for those who are not familiar with this, so the, the way it works is you, uh, so you make an abdominal incision. So this is mom, the head is here, feet are is here, so skin incision is done, and you're looking at uh, the um, uterus. So the incision that you make on the uterus is not a typical c c uh, cesarean section. You have to use an ultrasound to f know exactly where placenta is, and you make your incision, your hysterotomy, based on which body part you want to operate, and where the placenta is, because you need to preserve the placental circulation, which gives you about 45 minutes to do the procedure. If you damage that, you're going to, then there will be issues. So let, I'll show you two fetal cases. 
I don't do the first two. I just, I've shared this from my colleagues. So in case of meningomyelitis, again, I won't get into the details, but it's important to do this early on because the, by the time this child is born, the damage is already done. So you do these surgeries at 22 to 25 weeks of gestation. So the way it's done is the hysterotomy is done. Part of the body, whether it's brain or the spine, is exposed. You do the surgery. You put the baby back into the uterus. You close the uterus. And mom is going to be on bed rest from 25 weeks to the time of delivery. And that's why I told you the social aspect is extremely important and the medical insurance aspect is extremely important. Because this, this mom is going to be on bed rest as from 25 weeks until, until you deliver the baby. Another condition is teratoma at the sacral region. This child will not survive if you don't intervene because of the and typically high output cardiac failure that may happen during the fetal life. So again, you do this 20 weeks to 25 weeks. Again, hysterotomy, you expose the body part, you remove the mass, baby goes back, uterus is closed, bed rest from 25, 20 weeks to the time of delivery. Now this is what we do from the oral side. These are the exit procedures. So this is a little bit different you do this at the time of delivery as opposed to at uh, 20, 25 weeks of gestation. And the reason we do this, as I told you, is because of the head and neck masses and because of, uh, you know, if you have laryngeal obstruction or laryngeal stenosis. This, the, at the time of the delivery, only the neck up is, comes out of the uterus with one arm to put the IV in. The rest of the body has to stay inside the uterus to stay warm and you're hoping, praying that the placental circulation stay okay. It says 60 minutes, but you usually have about 45 minutes. And you try to do this as close to full term, because once you establish the airway, you will deliver the baby. So this is the paradigm that I, I usually think about these things. Do we have airway concern because of that fetal mass? If the answer is no, then the case is closed. It is, if it's yes, the question is, can we go through a normal delivery? Can we do a C-section? Can we intubate? And if the answer is we cannot intubate, then the question is, or some other complexity, then the question is the exit procedure. So that's, that's how we think about this. So I'm going to show you four cases, two simple cases. Lymphatic malformation. This is a 24-week ultrasound at 23 weeks of gestation show a cystic mass anterior to the neck. So it's away from the airway. And if you look at these, these are fetal MRI. This is this, the uterus. This baby is in the uterus. Obviously, you're doing an MRI. You can see the mass. It's very, very anterior. And you see the airway. It's patent. So there was no need for intervention except for us to be at the time of delivery. I show you the post and the uh, fetal MRI to tell you how advanced this MRI. It's very impressive how much they can pick up and how this, the real life and the fetal imaging matches. So in this case, we just observed, we didn't have to do anything. 34-year-old ultrasound at 24 weeks. You can see a mass. It's a lateral. This is a fetal MRI. This is a typical branchial cleft anomaly or lymphatic malformation. This is at the time of the delivery at the Brigham in Boston. No airway issues. We monitored this patient conservatively. But the only interesting thing this patient has trisomy 21, had a lot of infection. And that's one of the cases I showed you early on. Did not respond to sclerotherapy or any sort of a medical management, and we ended up removing it. So even though this was a fetal case and we did not inter intervene with airway, it turned out to be a case that needed to be excised. So two simple cases, lateral lesion, no intervention. Now, some cases that are more challenging, the teratomas. This is a 34-year-old uh, who presented, again, by ultrasound, a large mass on fetal MRI that extends into the chest. So there is there's no way this child survived at the time of delivery. So that's where you go for exit. And you can see the imaging. You can actually look at different. You can do sagittal, coronal can move the baby and get the imaging on the fetal MRI. 
This is the mass that is compressing the lung. Forgive me for the imaging. This is, again, this is the time of the delivery. So I want to show you this, how accurate this fetal MRI is. This is the tongue based on the imaging that is coming out, and you can see the tongue coming out. And you can see the entire oral cavity is filled with the mass, which is this one. Obviously, this needed to be trached and sort of resected uh, at the time of the delivery. This is the only case I've seen in 22 years that turned out to be malignant at the time of delivery, and this patient actually started chemo right after birth. Next one is a 34-year-old ultrasound. It's amazing these days. 15 weeks of gestation, which showed this mass. It is a classic for teratoma, and you can Interestingly, by moving the baby, you can do flexion and extension the same way that you can do neck film. You can actually press to see if, it, if by extension or flexion you can compress the airway, and this airway is compressed. So we started by this, and by the time of the delivery, you end up with this. And the reason you do this, again, for these children, you want to deliver them at the time of the resection. So you, you wait, even though the mass is going to get bigger and make the surgery more difficult from a cardiopulmonary perspective, from a brain development perspective, from a survival perspective. It's better to push this to 38, 37 weeks of gestation. So this is a children, this is our team. This is, as I told you, it's a little bit chaotic. So the hysterotomy is done. The baby is delivered. This is the neck mass. We were able to intubate the patient. Once the airway is secured by intubation, again, this is the neck mass, the cord, umbilical cord is cut. You deliver the baby, and typically you have a second room available. So one room is where mom stays, and then you take the baby to a second room. You go to the second room, and then the question is, is the airway stable? Can we send this patient up in the NICU? If I send this patient up at 2 o'clock in the morning, the tube comes out, can somebody put the tube back in? If the answer is yes, you don't do anything. You let the baby settle down, because they really go through a shock when they are delivered like this. And you don't do anything to this for two weeks, three weeks, until things are settled. So these are postnatal imaging. This, are, this is a classic teratoma for those uh, residents. If you ever see something like this, that you can see one thyroid and you don't see the other thyroid, it's a teratoma. And 90% of the time, it comes from the left side. 90% of the time, we cannot find the recurrent laryngeal nerve. 90% of the time, when you take this out, the left focal cord is out. So this is the resection. This is that mass. This is the thyroid that was preserved. These are before and after. And this patient had like a month or so of difficulty with feeding and aspiration. This was the cord function. But then again, it's the blessing of working with children. They do compensate. 30-year-old, I believe this is maybe the, some of the last cases. 16-week, amazing they picked this up. So you saw this child, and there's something coming out through the oral cavity. It's filling up the oral cavity. But I want you to also see this. We missed this. I missed this myself. I didn't pay attention to this. This is an umbilical cord that was wrapped around the neck. And we were so much focused on this that I did not pay attention to this. So this is at the time of the exit. So mom's head is here. Feet are in here. Skin is removed. This is an ultrasound trying to figure out exactly where to make the hysterotomy. The bovi is typically used to do the hysterotomy. Forgive me for the picture is going to be a little bit graphic if you don't want to watch it. This is the head that comes out. So this is the baby's head. This is the baby's ear. This is the baby's arm. One arm comes out to put the IV, and you cannot see the face because this is the mass that comes out of the oral cavity, and you don't see the eyes or you don't see the uh, mouth. And this is the thing we missed. And this placenta ruptured. And we missed this, and we almost lost this baby. And to this day, this baby was named Grace, because I really think it survived because of the grace of God, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know how, but we were able to establish the airway and put the ET tube in here in 
like 30 seconds. It was just purely luck. I don't think I can ever do this again. And this is the chaos that you'll see with number of hands. This is the hand that is IV. Once the airway established, you know, the cord is cut. You can see it here. And then now you take the baby and you take him to a different room. And I show you this, the imaging again. We have done a lot in otolaryngology. I'm an otolaryngologist, but I will tell you the advances that radi radiology has made, the advances that anesthesia has made, the advances that the imaging these days have been, it's remarkable compared to what we have done. So these are fetal imaging. I put them side to side for you to see exactly how accurate it is. Now I told you, now the decision is, should we send this patient up to the NICU? What if this thing comes out in the middle of the night? And this is not a safe airway. I don't think they will be happy up in the NICU. So then the decision was made to resect this right at birth. This was resected, and we left some behind. And this patient had a complete cleft palate with an extension to the skull base. Went through 11 surgeries to go from here to here, including a palatal reconstruction. And I still see this child. Uh, this is her with the trach when she was born as the older brother. We had to do an airway reconstruction afterwards uh, with a cartilage graft to take the trach out. And we started here, and this is here. And the only deficit this child has, come to think of it, is a right-sided hearing loss. And otherwise, it's amazing that this, this patient survived. So I've showed you a lot of good cases. I'm going to end with this, and I have time for some question. Uh, forgive me for the next picture, but I want to make a point of showing you this. There is a lot has been accomplished, but I think, at least in my field, there is a long way to go. These two patients, in this day, there is nothing we can do for them. These, we were consulates from overseas, one from South America and one from Africa. Lack of access. This is an amyloblastoma. It's a benign tumor that could have been managed very, very easily, but got to this point because of lack of access of care. We are very, very fortunate in this country. Same thing here, benign tumor. Lack of access got it to this point. And there is nothing at this 2019 we would do to this. Now, these two are my patients. And I always like to air things with the things that have the mistakes that have, we have made myself. Again, younger child, lymphatic malformation. There's nothing I know of that I can do for this kid again, against just, just maintaining this with a trach and a G2 and recurrence of infection. This patient I saw in 1998 from one of the best institutions in the country that came to Boston. The initial issue was this they thought this is a hemangioma. They put this patient on, uh, on steroid, which I would have done. Strawberry-like lesion on the face, hemangioma, and had a lot of steroid injection, but did not respond. And this is for the residents in the room. So you're doing a treatment and doesn't respond and doesn't respond. And finally, somebody said, let's get a biopsy. It turned out to be a raptor. And by the time they made a diagnosis, had brain metastasis and liver metastasis, and I, I went to this child's funeral, I still remember it. So my point to the younger people in the audience is if you do the treatment and it's not responding and it's not responding, double check just to be sure you're not missing anything. So I'm going to end by this, and I'll be happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think everyone is, uh, is uh, amazed by the work that, that you and your team have done for, for these young patients. So we have a few minutes for questions, and please use the microphone. that people, uh, children are sent to you from all over the world. Um, how 
process of deciding whether they're a surplus um, I understand the commission has that approach, but how do you, what is your decision-making process around that? So, uh, even as far as bringing them to? Like after they, like you see the issue before you bring them, and what, what goes through your thinking in deciding whether or not you I think the more um, the more information we get upfront, the better it is. I mean, the worst thing is specifically for people who are coming from a long distance, specifically for those who have financial restriction, to get them to Boston and then tell them we can't do anything for you. It's disastrous. So we do our best to get all the information upfront, imaging, medical histories. I, I we actually sometimes reach out to the family. We reach out to the referring physicians, pediatrician or referring surgeon, just to be sure we are not missing anything. That's phase one. If we really think we can do something for them, then we bring them. If I feel that there's something missing, then they don't have good imaging. They don't have the capacity to get imaging. They don't have the capacity to do certain procedures that needs to be done in Boston, then that's a conversation with the family that you may be coming here, you are going to need A, B, C, D, and then we have to make a decision whether we can help you or not, and leave it up to them to decide whether it's worth the journey. But honestly, the, the most important thing, specifically for cancer patients, it's to be upfront with them. We are very fortunate because we have Dana Forward that can help us with some of this, and there are some fundings that can be done for the families who can't afford it. Uh, I actually myself have a little bit of a fund that sometimes I can access for those people. So we are we are extra 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 cautious when specifically when there is financial issue involved, and then unfortunately the reality is not the insurance issue. Sometimes there are childrens, and it's very sad to say, but it's the reality that we can do something for them, but then there is insurance barrier, there's approval issues and out of state issues and so on and so forth, which I'm sure everybody here is familiar with. So that has become more of a new concern for everyone in the last five, six years. And I think it's going to get worse. I do have a question, so again, uh, fantastic, amazing work. Um, is there any role for, for prenatal genetic testing, perhaps at, at an earlier time, for some of these lesions so they don't progress to the size that they are? They need developing therapies that are, uh, in addition to the surgical piece, that they it's a, it's a great question. I don't think we are there yet, honestly. That's, uh, I do feel, first of all, for all of these cases, for the fetal cases, before they go through the management, they go through the fetal genetic testing, just to be sure, because you don't want to go through this whole process, through this whole expense, which is extremely costly, and then find out that you have some genetic abnormality. So that's done on all. But do we have a capacity in genetic testing to actually detect this before they surface? The answer is no. And, do, and sometimes there are certain things we can pick up, but the, the management of this in the, at the fetal stage is not there yet. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank